Hello and welcome to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our second series, The Unknown Path, I'm meeting six different authors, actors and naturalists to discuss the various and often unexpected routes their lives have taken. The broadness of Wiccan Fen spreads low and flat to the horizon. Marsh reeds, gullies, fierce, blustery blue sky charged with birdsong. For all its openness, this is the kind of landscape that keeps its secrets hidden. It's here we meet the writer Helen MacDonald. In 2014, Helen published H's for Hawk, an extraordinary memoir that somehow tethered together her grief following the death of her father, the story of the naturalist T.H. White, and her experience training a goshawk named Mabel. It won her many prestigious awards and became a worldwide bestseller. Wiccan Fen is a special place for Helen, and we join her to talk about the odd course of her life, her presiding love for the natural world, and the experience of unanticipated success. We are standing on a raised, uh, muddy, grassy bank, looking out over the most exquisite scene. Um, we're in Cambridgeshire at Wiccan Fen. It's a piece of really sort of remnant wetland, and it's one of those blue and golden early spring days. With it's extremely windy, but there are birds everywhere. It's one of my favourite places. And that sound we can hear just above the wind, perhaps, is it's the reeds. What are what are these? What, what is their purpose? So yeah, most of what you can see at the moment, apart from water, are common reeds, uh, Phragmites australis, um, and I love the Latin name, <laughs> and they have this wonderful dry stem this time of year, they rattle, and you can hear them from quite a way off, it sounds a little bit like wind in a slightly different frequency, and one of the things I love about reeds is how unbelievably impenetrable they are. Um, I grew up in the sandy forests and heaths of, of, of Surrey. So when I came up here to university, I was completely unable to understand how to, how to read this landscape and how to walk through it. Um, Wiccan is wonderful because it is a, a really well-maintained area. There's lots of very, very good paths to walk on. But it's, um, it's, it's an area that it's constantly changing. You know, parts that I remembered being arable fields 10 years ago and now lakes. Yeah, it's beautiful here. So this, this place was really famous uh, for lots of reasons, one of which is like one of the oldest nature reserves in Britain. In the 19th century, the, the, the sedge and the reeds were cut and sent down to Cambridge in, in boats to start the fires of, of students. And young Charles Darwin would wander down to the riverbank and go through the sedge as it came in and f found lots of rare beetles. What I love about, love about this story is that he couldn't be bothered to come to Wiccan. He just went, went and waited by the, by the side of the river. But it was a haven for insect lovers in the 19th century it was a real craze back then these entomologists would come here and they would use lights to try and bring in insects and in fact there were so many lights that they used to get complaints that it's like a sort of like street lights that the place was lit up at night you know they also used to paint willow sticks with sugar water and treacle mixture to attract moths and they would stick them in the ground and quite a few of the big willow trees around here you can see are actually those sticks that have just grown yeah it's, it's a really interesting landscape like that. Lots of history. Should we cut down there to be away from the breeze? Absolutely, it's always a trade-off in these kind of landscapes. You know, if you go high up, you can see more, but um, at the same time, you tend to get blown over. We're close to the insects here as well. We are, I can, I can see spiders running around. I mean, down here, there's spiders galore. Sorry for waking you, little people from there. <laughs> So when you came over this way for university and you said you couldn't find your way into the landscape, how did you finally manage to get a foothold? 
Yeah, I was hopeless. I was so excited. You know, I grew up in these different landscapes and um, my way of watching birds and seeing animals then was quite simple. You'd just walk around with binoculars and then you'd see them and you'd look at them and, <laughs> and then you'd look at them in a field guide and work out what they were. So the creatures here are pretty much hidden, apart from some very obvious ones. So in the winter you have short-eared owls that hunt over the reeds and in, and in the summer these, these marsh harriers, these wonderful dark angels that quarter over the reed beds. They're just astonishing things. But everything else is hidden in the reeds and you, know, you have to listen for them. Um, there's a wonderful bird here called a water rail. Um, they're these plump, streaky things with a long red beak and a slightly nervous expression. Famously, they sound like pigs being killed, which is not a sound I have heard, to be honest. And this noise is called schwarming. And at night, if, particularly at night, if you walk around here in the in dusk at night, you'll hear these weird grunts and screams. It's going to be really, really eerie. Um, so I've never seen a water rail here out in the open, but I've heard hundreds. There's some great stuff. So, for example, if you go to, um, there's a very famous church in March. Um, I think it's St. Wendrida's. And it's famed for having a hammer beam roof with so many carved wooden angels. It's really transporting. You walk in there and, again, it's in this very flat Fenland territory. When you look up, it's, it's just astonishing. It's like the roof is about to lift off with these angels. And if you look at the wings, you know, they are they're marsh harrier wings. So the people that carved it, the model that they had, for something angelic on, you know, with wings would have been the Harrier, which would have been everywhere. So when you decided to settle in this part of the country, yeah. is that because it feels like home or because you still feel you're looking into the landscape? It's taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about how to see. So, oh, we're going up the back again. Gosh, it's really beautiful. There's just water everywhere. It's been raining really hard here. I'm looking at the the mirror, the lake over there, it looks like denim. It's bright, bright blue. I'm going to get my binoculars out now to look. Because, you know, I'm a bird geek. Got to do it! Some coots and a shoveler. You've got a great crested grebe. There's a wonderful Molesworth cartoon about different kinds of masters at public schools. So there's the sort of, the, you know, there's a very sporting one. I may not know much, but I'm good at football kind of one. And there's the kind of colonial service one, the terrifying one. But there's a kind of mothy one at the bottom with a moustache who looks delighted. And he just says, the crested grebes are mating. And I've always thought that's about as close to me as, as you can get. I'm that sad school teacher with the moustache getting overly excited about birds. Were you always like that growing up? Yeah, I was such a geek when I was a kid. I had a, a Collins Guide to the Birds of Britain and Ireland and, and it was in the loo and I would just sit on the loo and read it. But then later on, yeah, I mean, my friends would be into, into pop, pop music and stuff and, and I'd have pictures of kestrels on my bedroom wall, not pop stars. I mean, yeah, it's kind of, I was quite sad, really. Well, I mean, laughing now, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, I think sad in one sense, but I was a very happy child too, you know, so. I have natural historical echolalia. It's extremely embarrassing if anyone walks around with me anywhere where there's bird noises <laughs> because I just can't help but repeat them back to the birds. I don't think that's a, a thing to ask forgiveness for. <laughs> it's a gift. You can do it with owls. You can get them, bring them right up to you. I love doing it. Hugh Sykes-Davis, the one-time surrealist and also a Cambridge fellow, Cambridge John was once doing this. I think apparently he was calling in the owls at the back of King's College. 
and they got closer and closer and closer and it was just another another college fellow was doing the noise <laughs> so it's just the two of them it's just joyous oh there's a lot of peasants getting upset about something over there the thing i love about wiccan is that it's a it's a discreet piece of land it's cut with paths that we all go down and look over the sides and look at you know these little lakes and beds of reeds but also it's there are dotted lines connecting this place with very far-flung countries so there are ducks here widgeon these wonderful kind of bright russet and gold and gray ducks that make this wonderful noise a kind of noise it's a lovely noise when there's lots and lots of them doing it at once it's a very very evocative wintry sound and they come here in the winter they, they breed in russia um, and again many other birds have come here for the winter because where they breed is, is is frozen over but but i love the sense that by virtue of that this place is international it's an extremely local place and yet at the same time it has links with all sorts of places that i'm never going to go to and that crosses all our political borders it's just a really nice nice thought i hope you've upset a couple of mallards have taken off there so i love that sense of you know deeply local being universal it's a really kind of particularly time in political politically now What's over there? Hang on. Lots of white things. We've got some tufted ducks, these cool pied black and white ducks with an amazing little crest and golden eyes like buttons. We've got mallards and we've got lots and lots of black-headed gulls. Oh, and some widgeon, a little, little raft of widgeon. What is your party piece in bird calls? Oh, wow. Oh, that's really hard. I can kind of do blackbirds. Oh, that's... Um, they sort of go like that but I think the best duck noise has got to be uh, Ida if you imagine a slightly hopped up Frankie Howard that's what a, a, an Ida sounds like they bob their heads and they go Ooh. it's really hilarious to listen to them all at once Laura yes, yes. I'm afraid this is just you know it's not just one way here you have to do a bird impersonation too I'm not gonna you're not gonna get away with it go on do something I can't think of a single bird I can impersonate chickens I don't think I've ever tried to impersonate a bird. Oh, hang on. I could maybe do a wood pigeon. <laughs> I can't. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. see? There are these areas of lands here called Godwin Plots, named after Sir Harry Godwin, who was a you know, uh, basically really pioneering ecologist. It was always, oh, there's a widget in the background there. I can So it's always been managed by people. Um, this is not a wild landscape. It's a landscape that has been made by centuries of um, harvesting the reeds, harvesting sedge for thatch and for fuel. Um, the people that lived here would have been um, fishing. In fact, there are so many fish here back in, I think, medieval times and, and before is that people would actually pay their rents in fish. They were called fish silver, which is a wonderful, and there were eels and, you know, it's incredibly rich environment. So much of your life and work and even your language is rooted in nature and the seasons. Is that something that you always feel is, is drawing you through life or is that something you sometimes want to rebel against? Yeah, uh, confession time. So um, as soon as I became known as a quote nature writer, unquote, I kind of stopped going outside and I stopped reading nature books and listening to nature documentaries on the radio and on television and basically spent a lot of time um, watching superhero movies and reading science fiction. Like, no, I'm not going outside. But of course, that was nonsense. So I think that the seasons have an unacknowledged role in all of our lives, really. They, they just pull you through years. And the older you get, the more those 
seasons reappearing becomes more and more and more poignant. You know, spring becomes harder and harder for me. You know, all those new things, all those tiny new things, lots of which are not going to survive. You know, I, I'm becoming very sentimental. I think that only happens when you're old enough to really re understand the realities of death, I think. So it's really hard not to think of seasons as a pathway towards, you know, extinction. <laughs> I'm being really cheerful here. On such a sunny day. We've had a, a weird spring this year so far because we had a sort of early burst of heat and we seem to be now be going cold again. What effect will that have on a landscape like this? I think this landscape is quite uh, resilient. But I, I do think that every spring you quite often get a few warm days. Nowhere near as warm as we've had this year. And then it goes back to being cold. So that's quite a comforting thing. But the fact that it was like 21 degrees here a few weeks ago is it's just terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So in your writing, Helen, I know that a lot of people will probably associate you with H's for Hawk. And um, there's a lot of uh, solitary time or time alone with a bird in that book. And you brought us to this place which is a very solitary place. We've seen very few people. But the other side of your life has taken you all over the world, meeting people, interacting with people. How do you find the balance in those two? And do you like that balance? Or would you rather be on your own all the time? It's been really interesting, actually. I think I've discovered that I'm less of an introvert than I thought I was. But you, there is definitely a sense of two paths. Um, there's this path where, yeah, um, I need to recharge on my own. Um, I don't think of nature as just being there to recharge in, but certainly getting some light and wind and seeing minds and creatures with lives that are not your own is really, really refreshing and um, important for me. But yeah, people are great. Oh, there's a coot making a noise, but that lovely bubbling call was a little grebe, um, which are these tiny pocket-sized brown grebes. <laughs> um, but there's a kind of fellowship in, in nature too. There's a lovely um, time-bound observation by the ecologist Charles Elton in the 1920s. And he said that if you know the environment, if you know your local environment well, when you see creatures, they're just part of your community. And he, makes, he says that, you know, for example, when you see a, when you see a badger, you'll say, hello, hello, Mr. Badger, as if you, you know, hello, Mr. Vicar. It's kind of, that's, that's just part of your community. And I think that traveling and meeting other people in different places that I would never go, not my natural habitat, has, has really brought home to me how, <laughs> this is gonna sound so cheesy, but we're all the same. You know, my book is about grief and the natural world and loss and love. And I've met people from everywhere that have been through losses that are much worse than mine, of a, of a magnitude, great, great, you know, much greater magnitude than mine. And yet we, we are all in those moments the same. So in a sense, you know, both being out at, out in the sort of the pathway of nature and the pathway of hanging out with lots of people, both of them ultimately will bring you down to the, I think, the deeper truths about why we're here and who we are. Do you connect yourself now as an adult with this, yourself as a child? Oh, wow, that's a really, really, really obs good observation. Yeah, I did, actually. For many years, I didn't. My childhood was really, really happy. I mean, it was quite solitary but I felt very, very free. I didn't feel gendered really in any way that made a difference to my life. I mean, I knew I was a girl, I was happy to be one, but also I liked climbing trees and bringing snakes home, <laughs> much to my parents' dismay. Um, and then I think when I hit puberty, particularly at school, I started to get the messages that there was a sort of correct way to be a woman and I really didn't know how to do it and I felt quite alienated. It really upset me actually. And you know, now I'm kind of in my forties, I've reached the age where I, I just, I'm just me, you know, I don't really care anymore. And I've met lots of women 
over the you know last few years in particular like really great scientists and writers and people who work in the arts creative people who also have just decided like I'm just going to be me I'm not going to worry about those kinds of pressures it's a really interesting time in a woman's life I think your 40s there's um, so many women that I've had conversations with at this sort of age it's where life becomes something very very different if you've taken a slightly different path but richer and, and the connections you make with other women your age are profound sometimes I think absolutely absolutely and also like really obvious things too like realizing that you know life is pretty short and I do not have the time to hang out with people I don't think are nice or like very much they could just go and do their own thing so in many ways I think I've I think I would have worried my younger self I don't know does some of that use come from success I guess so you know, I have felt quite guilty. You know, I always wanted to write, but I never had the dream of being a successful writer, you know? And it sort of happened, and it's not just, you know, luck. It's also a lot of people behind me, so my publishers, and I always say that, you know, a book is like a like a ship or a boat. You know, you can build one yourself, but you can't go take it anywhere. So I feel I've been really lucky, but I think success per se is not something I've been chasing after, but now that it's happened, it makes me feel quite content that you know, um, I've done something. I suppose it does open up the path before you. It can go in different directions and the way is cleared for you. Yes, and in another way it's made it more complicated because, of course, if you have a success, the path ahead of you, you know, it's, if you're the other people, not the author, you think, oh, more success, but the author thinks, oh, no, it's all going to go terribly wrong from now on. Oh, what can I hear? That's a bearded reedling, I think. Well, I guess the path of success... It's a bit scary, you know. I, I wrote a book that was a surprise, surprising to me. People loved and bought, and now I have to write more books. And um, I think I'm a natural pessimist. I just assume it's all going to go terribly wrong. But at the same time, the fact that I kind of believe that means I can be quite experimental and have fun with my books. Hoot, hoot. It's like an old car horn, doesn't it? That's yeah. a over there. More here. One of the things that I like about coming here is you have hides. Yes. And um, I also I also love the way that hides work. You know, they, they remove your consequential presence from the scene. They make you invisible. You just become a pair of eyes, basically. So I've, I went from writing journalism to writing radio. And um, I think there's something very liberating for a woman about not being seen. And I think, oh, or being looked at and judged for that. And radio allows you to be anybody, really. That's really beautiful, that notion, again, we've come back to that notion of vision mm. and being seen. But, um, yeah, there's a great freedom to, to feeling that no one can see you. And I guess in some ways that's kind of problematic. Yes, so I think if you write, and you must find this with bells on, that you're asked to go out in the world to talk about writing. I mean, you know, I gave the kind of a similar book talk for about three years. And, you know, it really was like doing rep. And what kept me going through there was two things. Um, one was that I, I began to become fascinated with, with that performance and how it became quite clear to me that it wasn't me. And it was exhilarating. And after, you know, if it, if it went well, I'd come back and I'd kind of pace around my hotel room for like three hours. I couldn't sleep, you know. So that was fascinating because it was a, it was a path to developing a new persona. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a fake person. It was just a person that could do that job, which was to perform, you know, every night, really. Do you start to feel that shift in between your the person you've been before and then the person who could be persona Helen? 
some of it still was sort of embedded back way back when I was an academic and I did, I did lecturing. I think it was when I was in America, because I think being in another country is slightly freeing in that regard. I think I played out the Britishness slightly. <laughs> I think I became rather more posh. And people were just generally completely lovely to me. Yeah, people would come and talk to me about, about things in a way that was deeply moving. And, you know, these were very personal things. And after a while, I, I mean, this is going to sound really presumptuous, but I, I ended up feeling a bit like a kind of a, like I was inhabiting the role of some kind of like, not a priest or a vicar, but someone that was, could listen, that was safe to tell things to. But no, that's not a Parthenon file. I'm not going to go. In. I don't think I'm going to go into counselling or anything, but it was a very, very fascinating and deeply, deeply moving kind of thing to have to, not to have to, but to, to be involved in. I guess as well that realising that books can have that effect for other people is quite a, an extraordinary feeling. Yes, because, you know, you write the book and you think, oh, I've done that now. And you have no control over what happens to it. You know, after a while, I started, I started to think of the book as being like a cake I'd baked. Like I'd made, a, I'd made this really nice cake and I wasn't sure about it, but like, you know, no one knew the agonies that went into making it, like the times I cried under my desk and the bits that didn't work, like when I took the chapter out that didn't fit and all those things disappeared and so there's this, there's this cake and you give it to people. I guess, you know, people go through, I mean, it's pushing it a bit, but they go through wintry times in their lives and I felt a bit like we can fend people in, the, in these winter, having their winters were sort of come towards me, you know, it was... Uh, yeah, I'm like Wiccan Fen. People come winter, winter in me. Yeah. That's really nice. That's lovely. <laughs> You've been listening to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. The producer is Jeff Bird, and the series was conceived by Emily Mears. You can subscribe to the Toast podcast via your usual podcast provider, or listen on Toast Magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. Our third series will be launching in autumn.